Okay, so okay. Uh, I think I have to press. Yeah, I was just saying that um, I was trying to, after I finished uh, my own writing my own book and publishing my book in June this year. So my book is called uh, Value Without Fetish, um, the theory, pure capitalism in light of Marx's critique of political economy. And that's a big book on Marx that I wrote. And it was published in June. And after that, I decided to not to get upset uh, with too much, you know, things going on in theory and in leftism. But, you know, you can't help it at the moment. You can't really right. escape from, from, from the insanity uh, going on around us. It's peak insanity right now. And then I came across this, this book by Benjamin Bratton. And uh, so he advocates for um, technocratic fascism. And he's, a, he's basically a clear-cut fascist. Like, uh, if, you, if you look at the original fascism, the original Nazis of the, of the Hitler era in Germany, um, the National Socialists, there, there have been architects of, uh, of the Holocaust and systems of um, first oppression and then extermination of a whole people, right? And um, reading the Bratton book, and I'm thinking to myself, wow, the guy, he, he basically wants to do the same. You know, he, he talks about, um, um, you know, he wants people to uh, subjugate themselves under the new COVID regime, under authoritarian technofascism. He wants to put people in camps. He wants to denounce bodily autonomy, subjectivity, individuality. And all these things that are relevant. And most of all, he wants to get rid of the idea of um, um, subjectivity as, you know, a, a subject of history, of, pro, of progression in history. And he wants us to think of ourselves as objects, not as subjects. And, you know, and all of this, it's not directly um, derived from fascist writers or fascist thoughts you would think of somebody like Carl Schmidt who was an authoritarian but it's like it's been taken a detour through post-colonial theory so what Breton does is, is has been taken this detour through uh, post-colonial theory and uh, post-structuralism where you have all this this whole idea of um, the narrative of subjectivity being you know outdated and you only have um, the sensual layer, which is also a very prominent concept in Breton's book. And, you know, he has the funny thing. I mean, I was reading it and, and I was thinking, oh, my God, this is like, this can't be real. Is this satire? There was this <laughs> book, I don't know. There was this book by, um, written on a pseudonym by um, Titania McGrath on woke culture. And um, it's a satire woke culture is like taking it to the extreme and I thought this was something like that somebody some guy writing on the pseudonyms and and writing a book about the pandemic but because he he, he you know he has these propositions for such extreme measures like come on putting people in camps right <laughs> I mean but no it's it's dead serious and um so I couldn't really believe what I was reading but this is the reality we're facing right now. So I couldn't really <laughs> um, pursue my plan of not getting in touch too much with, with what's going on, on on the theoretical front right now. And so that's what I've been doing these past, I don't know, two, two weeks or so. You know. 
trying to get my head around how this how this works out for for a leftist position. <laughs> yeah, yeah, like that that's one of the hardest things to do is uh hate read something or like read something. Yeah. That I have to be like. so slow, you know. Yeah. I can't read fast. I like I, when I love a book, I, I read so fast and I it's like 3 hours and I'm done with the book. It doesn't matter how you know how many pages. But if I really hate it so much and it's and it's also it's so absurd the claims he makes are, are so absurd like um he talks about conspiracy theorists being like everywhere in the united states and white trash you know this white trash anti-vaccine <laughs> and so on and and then uh and this and this he talks about white supremacy and folk tales and 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 just think how the U.S. Capitol Police had to suffer at the hands oh of the God. mob. <laughs> you know, it's like, are you fucking kidding me? You know, I was last week. I was uh, like I was people visiting that were comparing Cali. January sixth to like the Taliban or whatever. Yeah, like Michael Moore on I Twitter. Mean, now, Michael, yeah, I saw that Michael Moore. That was, it's, that when was they stormed the temples of power, that's when they're the best. You know, like a pro Taliban, and then. <laughs> yeah, what what happened on January sixth? Yeah, and I don't know. He's uh, he's just a creep. I mean, like yeah, right. <laughs> who could take him seriously? <laughs> he posted something like he said something about um, people posting something and people saying something are the same thing. Um, he said something about um, for the first time the American in the history of the American census, the white people have. Um, like uh, the number of white people has diminished in the United States. And it's like, that's a good thing. You know, that's the first good news. Yeah. <laughs> like, what are you, 12 like years a, a old? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, this is, so, this is so obviously racist to say something like that, you know, but okay, there's no racism against white people. So I guess it's okay. Yeah. Anyway. He's trying to be like <laughs> hip, I guess. Like he recognizes, he well, he, he literally always says this too. He's like, oh, you know, I'm just an old white man, like, you know, don't listen to me or whatever, you know, so he's yeah. really trying to play that, like, uh, that, like, hip, like, woke role, um, and he's such a tryhard with that, with that stuff, man, he's really yeah. a cuck when it comes to that, um, but he's really involved with, like, the, uh, the Verso books people, I believe, which is, like, the same people that isn't, um, that Benjamin Bratton book didn't that come yeah. out so yeah verso we call yeah. it the verso loft it's a verso left the verso oh, loft, loft. <laughs> yeah that's, that's literally something like I always think about them and Jacobin and DSA as like the same kind of uh liberal apparatus oh um, yeah of course left. of course this is not a secret <laughs> everybody knows that <laughs> I mean yeah, everybody who has remember, a brain to think or go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah, no, I, just, I was just, I was just saying. Of course, I mean, this is this is not really a secret. Just reread some of my um, older Substacks on um, this whole um, Trinity formula of the left about um, race, class, and gender. And I have some, uh, I've written some essays on this issue, and I just um, rediscovered a quote by. Alexandria, AOC, Kazi Cortez, uh, last year when she said, the class essentialists are a threat to our movement. 
I mean, and this says really everything, everything that you need you to need know, know. <laughs> about, the, about, about the Democrats. Yes, right. Yeah. So. <laughs> well, you know what's funny is like, here's the interesting part is like I was just looking today. I don't know if it was, I literally get them mixed up, but um, I'm pretty sure they both, he, 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 uh, he fucks with both of them. Um, Adolf Reed, he was on like a Jacobin or he was on like some Verso books, YouTube video earlier, uh, like yeah. a few days ago or whatever that I just seen today. And I was just saying, cause I, I, um, I, I, I'm still am a, a fan of Adolf Reed. I used to really, really be a huge fan of him until he, completely threw Angela Nagel under the bus uh, on the Useful Idiot yeah, yeah. Matt Taibbi's podcast. I don't know if you watched it or not, but he like called yeah, Angela Nagel a fascist or whatever. Do you know much about that? Or Well, no, he didn't call um, Angela Nagel a fascist. He called Julius Klein, uh, Julius Klein a fascist. Uh, Julius of um, or he, he American called, Affairs. Yeah, he, he, he Which said is something also about like, oh, you know, uh, they're, they're trying to turn like leftist right wing or whatever. And he said, oh, yeah, they got Angela already or something. Well, the thing, well, the thing about Adolf Reed is that... Um, and also, um, nonsense. You know, uh, this this uh, this online journal that he is uh, very active in. I really, actually, I really like Adolf Reed and I like uh, Walter Ben Michaels. Walter Ben Michaels, right? Yeah, and but the thing is, they are social democrats. I mean, they are social democrats in the original sense. You know, they're they're calling for for equal. You know, they address inequality. They want re redistribution of wealth and all these things, which is fine. But for a Marxist, you know, as such as myself, this is not this is not the end of the story. On the other hand, um, I would, in a fight between uh, left liberals uh, and uh, such as you know the Verso left or Asad Haider and people like that, in a fight between such people and on the one hand uh, and uh, Adolf Reed Jr. and the non-side people on the other, I would always take the side of Adolf Reed, you know, it, it, and I did so actually in, in an essay I wrote against uh, Adolf, uh, against Asad Haider on real abstraction and the answer to class reductionism. And there's this essay I, I, I wrote last year after this whole uh, Black Lives Matter thing started up, which completely changed the narrative of the COVID-19, um, you know, social distancing, pandemic mm, measures narrative, when it was suddenly okay, you know, to be on the street with millions of other people. Yeah. And not socially distanced. And Matt Taibbi not really got a lot of shit for that, for yeah. saying that, for pointing that yeah. out. Yeah, me too, because I wrote a whole published uh, uh, an article about that with uh, my co-author, Joshua Pickett de Paulus. And it's called The Middle Class Leviathan, and it came out in Crisis and Critique last year. So anyway, I got a little feed for that too. But what's interesting is, so to come back to this whole thing about, um, so Adolf, um, Adolf Reed, he was, somehow he was canceled for um he, he was supposed to give a talk at uh some dsa new york <laughs> chapter meeting uh on on i don't know it's race so class funny. i don't know and and because adolf reed you know he's a he's a he's a an acknowledged you know he's a social scientist and so on he's a left-wing i wouldn't say marxist but um 
though he has this Marxist components to his thought. Right. He's, of course, somebody who says, uh, we need to talk about class, right? And so he was canceled for saying that. Yeah, he's called a class being, reductionist uh, or whatever. He was, then he was labeled a class reductionist. And then you had all these people either supporting or denouncing him. And then you have these special leftists, I call them my special leftists, like um, Asad Haider. He wrote uh, his own, I think it was a substack. it was some other kind of blog perhaps, about class, it was called ca Class Cancelled, and he tried to give this balanced view of this, of this dispute. But effectively, it all came down to denouncing Adolf Reed Jr. as a class reductionist. Like, this is the wrong position to take in this debate on race and class. You can't be a, a, a class reductionist. So what I said, but what I said in this, in my, in my article, in my, um, in my essay was that class reductionism is not a theoretical position. It is not something, um, it's not a, it's not a, an attitude in the mind of a theorist or anything like that. It's not an ideological question. It's not a question of ideolog ideology. But class reductionism, if you really take it um, uh, as what it really means semantically, is the very structure of reality right. for most people living on this planet, right? It's a real abstraction. It's something that actually exists for people who have to sell their labor power for a wage, right? And this is, the, this is what constitutes class. So this reduction to class is something that happens in the, in the everyday lives of people, right? Who have to live uh, for, on, a, on a certain wage. And so we have a real abstraction going on here. So this is not a theoretical position, but this is something that people have to endure. People have to live with that and they cannot escape it as long as we live in a capitalist system, right? And this is historically unique too in capitalism. You know, you, you never had this reduction to class and then in every other kind of society because class society as such only emerged with the separation of the direct producers from the means of production in, in the early 14th century in England, right? So, um, and this is the significance of that. And then you have these funny people like this. I always have to smile aside a little bit and laugh a little bit about this guy, Ben Burgess, who, oh my God. no, you know, no, uh, class reductionism um, nobody's really a class reductionist we also talk about gender and race and 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 trans people all the time we do not you know it's like why do you exist why do you exist why what do you do you know um are you trying to apply for a job at cnn i don't know you know <laughs> people people are not even really um, critically reflecting their own position. What does it even mean to say somebody is a class reductionist, right? It's not a coherent, it's not even a coherent accusation. You know what I'm trying to say? Right. So, um, because it's, it's an objective, it's an objective relation between you as a wage earner, as a laborer, as, as the seller of labor power, and capital. 
it's an objective relation and you cannot do away with this just by saying, oh, you're a class reductionist, you're thinking about class too much. No, there is not too much thinking about class because that's the defining structure of our present reality. Yeah, what, what I always like to do is um, like throw it back at them and, and call people race reductionists or like I've seen people saying that. Um, but I, I think it's still like, even when you're, even if you were to call someone like, oh, you're a race reductionist, you know, you're not, you're not thinking about class enough. You're trying to say, I don't think about race enough. You're not thinking about class enough, but it's still kind of like ironic because, um, you know, there's the idea of like intersectionality of like, okay, you know, we, we, um, we care about race, gender, and class, but I feel like intersectionality is stupid. And that idea is that whole idea is kind of like a psyop because I feel like these things are like true, like, like truisms. Like we don't even like, like mm -hmm. that. I, I feel like you don't even have to say that, you know, I feel like the, the whole intersectionality thing, the whole class reductionism thing is i feel like it's new and it's like you know it, it's more of a newer thing because it's it's artificially created in in the uh, in academia um well yeah well you know intersectionality comes from the um 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 Combahee river collective and it's it's a neoliberal psyop actually it's not yeah. it's not it's not as though these three terms, these three concepts, race, class, and gender, have the same semantic um, value and, and the same me meaning, right? First of all, uh, class is very, very real, and race is not real, right? Yeah, race and gender, is not real, right. And gender isn't real either, right? Gender isn't real. This is something that's been made up by completely cringe uh, anti-feminist so-called feminists in the 1960s, 70s, so come on. So what we have here is a, is a conflation of, of three different terms, which I always call the Trinity formula of, of, the, of the present left. And, um, but let me start by saying this, because you said, you know, you can't be race reductive, I mean, race reductionism is, is, is a bad thing. And, Yes, of course it is, but um, race isn't, isn't even real, while class is real, right? Race does not exist, okay? And um, the leftists that say that, they, they would even say that. I would, they would agree and say, you know, race isn't real. Um, it, it's, it's the social construct. But the problem is that this argument in the left, it really goes nowhere because the way... Um, that in theory, the left um, conceptualizes race, that it uses race, um, is, is just as equally and readily reified and, and ontologized, you know, as though it was biological, you know, and no leftist would say that race is a bi biological reality. But they treat the, the concept of race as though it were a biological reality because left-wing Americans, progressive Americans, and not just Americans, <laughs> I don't live in the United States, I'm not an American, but this is what you, what I experience every day when I talk to people, I have so many colleagues in, in the UK and, and, and the United States, they ritually produce race yeah. uh, day in and day out. Like no one else in the world. Without being aware of it, 
right? Yeah. So race becomes real through the back door, right? They say it, it's, it's just a social construct, but they treat race, you know, even this, this whole anti-racist um, stance or, um, you know, candy, you know? Um, he, he, and, and this is, it is a reification of race. So it comes in through the back door and you cannot say on the one hand, it's just a social construct, which has no reality. And then demand that white people feel guilty and have the 1619 project and all of these things. This is a performative contradiction in the progressive left. Right. Right. Well, yeah, I mean, like, like, well, I, like two things really that that come to mind is like the, the first idea is well, um, like, okay, yeah, like that is correct. So America, we, we, unlike any other uh, country in the world, we really focus on race. Like, we're really obsessed with race. Um, I was just talking about this with my friend Angie Speaks, who just came on the last podcast, but um. In America, we're, like, really obsessed with race. Even, like, in the UK, they're not even as obsessed with race as we are in America. So, not so sure about that, though. Have you ever been to London? Have you ever been to a London university? <laughs> no, I have not. <laughs> and go to the student center and looked at the, the ads and, and the murals, and they're fucking obsessed with race. So you have well, to that's true. That's true. But, I, I mean, I, I think because America is such, like, a big cultural export we they probably get that from us or i don't know i mean yeah. they're probably obsessed yeah. with race in their own way too but another thing i want to say is you know like how many of these people you know and leftists or whatever like how many of them really under like it's actually a complex idea it's actually a complex thing about how race isn't real like it's actually like the biology and the actual science of that is actually pretty complex. Like how many of these people honestly understand that racism isn't, isn't a real thing. We shouldn't treat it as such. Um, that's why I really got into Adolf Reed because he does a lot of good work on this and, and even how we, uh, and even how we think about race and, in um, and medicine and, and, and shit like that. Uh, he, he's done a lot of good work on that, but, well, but, but race isn't real. And I mean, that, that I know, it, it that's is what I'm saying, but, but so it's not even how so many of these people really understand that though is my question. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's just paying lip service when they say um, that that race isn't real because they operate, they keep on operating with this term. And I'm concretely addressing the people I've also written about, uh, like Asset Hyder and Charlie Post and Nikki Paul Singh and uh, who else? Um, you know, like Cedric Robinson, who wrote this book, like Marxism, and and this is it's a fetishization of race. It's a fetishization. It's a fetish. It's become a fetish, with the sole purpose to divert attention away from the problem of class. And I think that's been uncovered in the last couple of years already. And people who are still unsure about what the race discourse is about, they should read Oliver Cromwell Cox. Who, oh yes, um, I want to ask you about him. And 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 also C.L.R. James, they were the great uh, theorists of the Marxist black tradition, but um, the left doesn't look to them anymore. They don't read them anymore. You know, they look to anti-Marxists like like Cedric Robinson or so. And Oliver Oliver Cox, um, he wrote this um, this really this 
yeah, this phenomenal work in, in 1948, uh, standard work on, on, on class and race called Case, Class and Race. And, and, and he says, the fascist principle demands that class conflicts be converted into race conflicts. Okay. And so if, if you take this seriously, what he says, so we, we're living in fascism already, right? Because all the class conflicts are externalized as race or gender conflicts with the sole intention to divert the intention away from from the real issues you know economic issues and um you know cox he suffered accusations of being a class and economic reductionist in the 1970s himself. oh yeah what did they even call it back then um economic determinism or yeah economic determinism right yeah but it's interesting because we live in a society that is economically determined <laughs> right 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 and policy and 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 ideology. We live in 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 the neoliberal era, despite some people who say the neoliberal era is over, which I think is a left liberal um, dog whistle for you know accepting neoliberalism as it is. <laughs> oh yeah, no, um, we're still we in still... it. It's only getting worse. <laughs> Exactly. And oh, well, you have to talk to some people uh, to see that they really believe that neoliberalism is over, which is a bit uh, a bit of a denial of reality. But no, but Coxie suffered this, these accusations of, of economic reductionism. And um, this is, of course, in like in the history of philosophy, that would be an idealist position. It, it would be an idealist position to say, you know, we're not just economic beings. We also, um, you know, we we are more or less determined by our idea, ideas and our visions and our desires and so on, rather than the economic base and the way that we reproduce ourselves, right? This would be an idealist position. And the materialist position would say it's the other way around, you know, the way that we reproduce ourselves, whether we have to work for a wage or not, and these things, they are decisive um for our um our worldview right so this is why we we have so class pushes positions class interests and and you cannot really you cannot reconcile the interests of the capitalist class with the interests of the working class you know this is a it's a contradiction it's a contradictory relationship and um so it's important to emphasize how this economic sphere um determines as Lenin says in the last instance, um, our being, you know, and um, I think he repeats it from from Engels. So, but it's important. So there's a bigger message, I think, a, a bigger, um, complex, more complex issue at hand. I think it's important to see that the real reductionists are those who say that we have to be more, you know, open, inclusive, diverse, you know, all these things that sound so good uh, to the neoliberal subject. <laughs> but um, this is the real reductionism because it turns the significance of material relations into one form of many uh, of oppression, right? And, and 
so by by saying these things are all equally important, you know, the, our identitarian factors like our the color of our skin, uh, uh, the, the way we look, the way we dress, the way we uh, identify sexually, and all these things are equally important as the, our class position in society is again uh, a means to divert attention away from from the real problem, which is the, which is class society and which is poverty within class society and the reshifting of wealth within that society, right? So this is why this is the point that that um, Walt Ben Michaels and you know um, and Adolf Reed and so on they make that uh, if you just want things to be more diverse, you still have the same inequality in the society, but then um, the one percent that who owns the you know the mass of wealth, they will be uh, more diverse, right? But it doesn't change anything about the economic situation of, of, right. of the majority of the people. It would just be more diverse. <laughs> like an idea that um, I've wanted to talk about, which is uh, for like a while on the podcast, but like this idea of like, because, you know, I really think that um, these ideas all come from somewhere, but I've been really, and I've been really meaning to really look into it myself and do research on it myself but um which i have a little bit but um it's like this idea of like i really i straight up and down believe that i don't think really i I think that barely any of this class reductionist idea fucking um this idea of like race uh and gender focusing on race and gender and like the intersectionality shit i think that most of that by far is literal cia psyop fucking like artificially created like completely government like controlled like we do not want people to uh focus on class and you know like a worker revolution or whatever like they've seen in other countries but um you know a lot of people say you know okay maybe there's a little bit of cia involvement in academia and whatever like there's proof there's absolute proof that the cia is act was a um involved in you know academia and stuff like that um but but people don't really tend to really completely believe that idea that i have that like no all of like 99 percent of this shit is um is like made up but in your in your you had a real you have a really amazing piece on your substack called toward toward division the bizarre argument for unified theory of capitalism and racial oppression which i recommend everyone go read but um uh you know like how long is the history of people being called a class being labeled as class reductionists or like um while you were looking into this you know did you find like a certain point Mm -hmm. in time where you started seeing um a rise in this like people being labeled as class reductionists because this is a fairly new thing if i'm if Mm -hmm. i'm not mistaken no no it's not a fairly new thing (laughs) you can go as far back as uh, the beginning of the 20th century, even. <laughs> I think, um, you know, um, the dates uh, between uh, Rosa Luxemburg and, and, and the reformist fraction of the Social Democratic parties and so on. No, but um, the more recent phenomenon, um, so after the death of the working, uh, working class movement, uh, so let me start by saying this. Um, I think you're right about, um, 
you know, CIA working with uh, neoliberal capital um, to to um, to erect this narrative. Um, neoliberal capital has a fundamental interest in crushing worker resistance. This is right. not a secret. So, and if you look at the biographies of the theorists that that make a point uh, for not so much for capitalism because they know it's not so much fa not not so fashionable anymore to right. be openly pro capital but you see people like Quince Labodian write sometimes for the for the guardian he is sponsored by the Volkswagen Foundation and he has <laughs> and and people like that and wow. Benjamin Breton of all you know he has a stipend from from uh from Russia Putin Right, and and there's big capital behind. You have all these people um, coming forward with their own in, in quotation mark ideas um, about um, what the structure of, of society is like, and then you have they have all these sponsors from from capital, you know, from the capitalist um, entrepreneurship and neoliberal um, companies that 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 we just put give them money, right? And then you have the NGO complex, which is the probably the biggest complex right now to promote such an ideology. It's all manager speak, right? It's all like, like the CEO of Citibank has written a proposal about, you know, how class reductionism is bad. And so it's too obvious oh, to say, no, this, the, you know, neoliberal capital and the CIA and so on have nothing to do with that. So, but um, it's not originally, um, you know, a CIA PSYOP, it's, originally it comes from the student movement. Um, if we skip the first 60 years of the 20th century and say, okay, that was when the, the working class movement was still very much alive, and there was a, a revolution in, in, in Russia, and then you had the Soviet Union. But uh, the 1960s uh, meant a decisive shift away from this class first yeah, that's what I always think. Society. I always think like in the CIA shit, like it really happened in the 60s. Uh, yeah. There was a lot of weirdo shit happening with the CIA in the 60s, like Charlie Manson yeah. and like LSD and shit. So <laughs> I wouldn't be yeah. surprised that they're also... And and who killed, um, and who killed this um, Fred from the, from the Black Panthers? Oh, Fred Hampton? Frank, Fred Hampton, yeah. I, I was going to say Fred Hampton, but I, I think, oh, is that correct? Yeah, who killed him? Right, CIA, yeah, or FBI, probably. or whatever. <laughs> FBI. Yeah. So, so what I wanted to say is because Hatter was one of those who was really outspoken about class, and he says they want to divide us, right? They want right. to divide us into white and black and whatnot. Yes. Yeah, so well, I have Fred Hampton as my profile picture on Instagram. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> and. Um, so, but I think it goes back to um, to a very specific clique, um, and that is the New Left Review. I would say, so they're basically Trotskyists, and they had some had some brilliant writers, and I really want to say um, some great stuff happening there. But then you have cultural theorists, and and become uh, cultural theory became a big thing in the in the 60s and 70s and then you have writers like Stuart Hall 
who never really, I don't think he ever used the word, uh, the expression class reductionist to, de to denounce his opponents. Yeah, I mean, I mean, this is a big shift also today. In the 60s, if you look at the, at the disputes, the debates within the left, um, they were up to a certain point, certain, specifically constructive. You know, they were constructive. People were listening to each other, trying to understand each other's arguments and so on, and making really fact-based um, evaluations. This is no longer the case. Now the left only, the left has one job, now it's self-assigned uh, task is to denounce the opponent, you know, not having arguments, just calling the opponent a fascist or a conspiracy theorist and so on. And it was different in the, in the, in the late 60s, early 70s. And when Stuart Hall was around, um, he had this, um, this famous saying where he said, race is the modality in which class is lived, right? Which I find problematic to say the least. It's, it's not really, you um, would have to explain this to me and I didn't find it a good explanation. It's more an appeal to what somebody might feel, you know, subjectively, a subjective emotion, subjective experience, rather than an objective um, statement about society. But I think this, it all went downhill from there. So from, from the New Left Reviews, you know, late 70s, maybe to the 80s and the British left. Um, it, it carried a lot of this resentment against those classic uh, Marxists, in them, you know, and they, they, they wanted to try out new things and new forms of living. It all became a lifestyle project, more or less. And it became, in fact, it became so popular um, when I was little, growing up in, in Germany, I remember the early 80s still quite well. So I remember um, my parents and my parents' friends, you know, suddenly turning up, you know, say, voting for the Green Party. There's a real ecological alternative, you know, being in the uh, anti-atomic um, power movement and, you know, all these things. And also aesthetically it became different. There was a lot of hippie influences from there, you know. So that was a decisive step away from the, from the aesthetics and, uh, and, and also the, the ideas of the classic traditional Marxist left, right? Uh, and it became right. more of a life, lifestyle thing to see. And it had a lot to do and with pop music, hippie culture, rock and roll, and all of that. And I remember it quite well. And it, it, it felt good at that time. I mean, I was a kid and we were, as kids, we were just left unattended until, I don't know, three o'clock in the morning, uh, sitting at, you know, campfires, somebody played the guitar. It was a lot more like this, this hippie camp feeling about this. Uh, no harm intended. But um, what, of course, happened was that um, the ruling class and the Green Party in, Germ in Germany especially became very quickly the party of the ruling class. They appropriated this kind of, you know, um, aesthetic shift away from, you know, a politics of worker centrality. And they aesthetically appropriated it, and they saw that, that um, a certain 
denunciation of the values of, of um, the, the workers' movement, you know, also, um, you know, building, um, building actual resistance to the capitalist state in strikes, say, okay, strikes at the workplace. Now it was suddenly denounced as not being, you know, up to date and fashionable anymore. And you have to go not outside, but inside yourself. And then you get all this, this, this new age romanticism, you got all this new age romanticism and it was closely entangled with the ecological movement. And that was, I, I think this was more or less an international phenomenon. I'm not sure whether this was just exclusively happening in Germany. I don't think so. It was, you know, when you see movies um, from the 19, late 1970s um, United um, US movies, you, you get the same feeling, you know, you get the same ideas. And um, the Vietnam War, of course, was a big incision in, in this, you know, that was a big um, shift to nihilism and a big shift to disillusion um, with, uh, with, with what was going on. And so many people have lost their lives and it was also that. And that didn't quite give away to a new revolutionary impulse because it was so strongly uh, appropriated by, um, I would say, these, these new agers, you know, this whole um, also psychologized in so many ways that um, that class society, capitalist class society, was to complete became completely anathematic to in discussions. You know, it's about going inside, you know, thinking, listening to your own spirit and mind, and doing meditations and doing yoga and all these things. I'm not saying anything against doing yoga and all these things. I do yoga myself, but you know what I was saying? It, it was a it was a substitute for actual political action. Uh, and, right. and it happened it's during like a personal, the same time. personal thing instead of like, yeah. it'll help your community or whatever. Just focus on your own yeah. individual mental health. Everything or... was everything was personalized in in in, in American um, discourse during uh, beginning with that time, I think, and also not just in the United States. I think more internationally as well as was so personalized. And there, and you can already see the first traces of how neoliberal ideology got hold of, of its subjects, right? Because this is exactly what neoliberal ideology wants. It wants people not to focus on the social, you know, there is no such thing as society, you know? Yeah, <laughs> right. That's just words. to focus on, on one's own personal experience. And to the day, we still face this kind of, this line of thinking in the left, right? Right. So it's, it's still a question of, say, lived experience, right? And and this whole idea of white privilege and privilege more generally is if you haven't experienced that, then blah, blah, blah. Okay, then how can you know? Okay, but society is uh, an object of thought and can be an object of thought and must be rationally explained and not by one's very personal, subjective, personal feelings, right? Right. That's how you like prove things that the scientific method is, you know, it's how we advance society is like, you know, I, I, they're probably like in the Middle East or something, whenever they are some of the first real scientists or whatever, when they were thinking about, oh, you know, like we, uh, you need multiple people to look at your experiment here and have an objective 
you know, I, you know, it's like you need community to have science. You need, you, you know, you need yeah. multiple people for it to work. Exactly. And you, you need know, you, you'll free never exchange get anywhere. of ideas. Exactly. You'll never get anywhere if everything is about personal experience. Yes, but, um, exactly. That really, you know, like, um, that was the thing about uh, when COVID was first happening. Like, there was this kind of hope or like this idea of like, well, you know, genu genuinely, I mean, I experienced, I mean, in America and uh, kind of on like, um, I think very genuinely, but especially like very generally uh, in the kind of like society and discourse in America, but especially in like the left fucking, you know, political uh, discourse, um, there was this idea of, uh, you know, when COVID first came around, there was this idea of like, oh, like we're all going to come together and beat this virus, you know, this idea of community for like a, a, a little bit. And I remember Zizek like had a book come out that I read, um, I think called Pandemic or Panic or some shit. I think it's um, a terrible book. I think yeah, it's a terrible it book. It was <laughs> we'll talk about, yeah, but it was just like, okay, well, this idea of like, oh, you know, for a split second, we have this idea of like hope and community and we're all going to fight this virus together or whatever, which I thought was pot, which I, I think is positive. I think it, it very quickly went away, but, um, um, you know, uh, I, I, I thought at least, you know, maybe I still think COVID, um, is it is probably going to be good for people like opening their eyes i think a lot of people have opened their eyes about how bad shit is and like the liberal apparatus and everything and really also becoming like anti-leftist and shit ever since covid i've seen a huge rise of anti-leftism and i think it's because people are being like woken up with the covid shit because some of the covid shit is so crazy and in your face which i want yeah. to talk about your article basic fucking common sense but uh before we get into that which is a really great article. I have a lot to a lot to ask you about it. But before we get into that, um, what is? Uh, go ahead and what's your take on the uh, Slavoj book? You said it was a horrible book. So, well, I mean, it was a quickly. Um, it was just a quick, you know, quickly written and so on. But um, I want to talk more about this um, this topic that's per become so pervasive during the pandemic because you said people were coming together again and yeah i have to say i have to admit i have not talked to so many i've not been talking to so many people as i have been the first two weeks of of lockdown you know this was something i need to catch up with everybody <laughs> and um people that i would usually whatsapp you know or twitter and then i would call them up and i would want to hear their voices right how are you what are you doing but that soon um you know that, that soon gave way to to more you know annoyance about the the, the, the new authoritarianism that that you know where it's it's ugly head but there was one one pervasive topic um in the COVID regime's uh narrative and that was the topic of vulnerability and people people being vulnerable it was i was i found it always interesting even before COVID even in the in the woke uh, uh, left in the discourse that we're always talking about vulnerable groups, vulnerable people, uh, the vulnerability of black people, of women, of trans people. And now we have the vulnerability of humans more generally. And to use this scheme to impose completely undemocratic authoritarian, I would say totalitarian measures. 
So that's a shift in the in the discourse on 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 authoritarianism. It has to be a shift because people don't want to be bad, right? People don't want to be guilty of of hurting vulnerable people, right? But what's interesting is that in order to to protect those vulnerable uh, populations, uh, whoever they are, uh, we have to impose stricter lockdowns, stricter policies, stricter measures, and so right. on, which is so, so self-contradictory. Right? Yeah, it's contradictory. Like, you had but, a good point in your piece. You the, said like old but, people can either be used for like a pro argument for lockdown, you know, yeah. it's like, oh, uh, you know, if we if the virus keeps on spreading, you know, your your grandpa or grandma might get it or whatever, you know. Um, mm-hmm. But as we impose the lockdown, um, old people are like dying because of like stress or fucking not seeing people, you know. Um, the dying of loneliness. The dying of, of loneliness. Or so sadness, many, exactly. So many old people who cannot see their relatives. I know so many stories of older people losing weight in three months over 20 kilos and just dying because they don't also sometimes don't understand if they have Alzheimer's or, you know, um, they don't understand why they're not allowed to touch anyone. Right. And then the, the closest family, the daughters, the sister or whatever comes and they want to hug them and they said they're not allowed to. And I, Jesus fucking Christ, I don't want to be in a room with these people preventing them to do it because I would have hit, hit them in the face and say, hello, you let this poor old lady hug her sister, right? Or, or, or couples, married couples being torn apart, you know, and, and being left to die and left to die. Yeah, so, so this narrative of vulnerability um, has been used as a, a very clever way to to blackmail people into compliance with because you know you don't want people to die because this is what you hear right you don't want to wear a mask you don't want to lock down you don't want to right uh, uh, keep your social distance then you want people to die right then you right. don't then you're not caring for those vulnerable people but what happens actually if you impose this as a kind of policy this kind of thinking this is man this is Solid. This is waterproof ideology, right? This is authoritarianism in its in its clearest, in its crystal clear form. And um, I'm very worried about the blackmail that's been going on with people during COVID. So I'm not so optimistic as you that people will see through this lip terrible. Yeah, I'm not very optimistic either. I'm not. I'm not optimistic because. I've seen people calling, they are just very short of calling for open, for public executions of of people who refuse to be vaccinated. I mean, I saw this, a woman I know on Twitter, and and, um, so I have some relatives also living in New York City, and they they send me these photos, and they say, look at this, I mean, get the fucking vaccine, take put on the fucking masks. They are posters at bus stations, right? And what kind of message is this supposed to mean, right? And then you have this, this, this graphic of a man with, with a, you know, with a red MAGA hat, possibly, you know, it looks like that, stupid, you know, white trash and so on. And he says, no, he's scared of taking the vaccine and he's scared of, you know, and he doesn't want to mask up and he's being, forced to and people find it cool people say hey 
New York is such a terrific place, hell of a place, right? Isn't that cool? Oh, we in New York is one of the coolest people in the world. You know, you're telling people to wear masks and, you know, showing wax passports for going to a restaurant or club or even having a coffee at the, at the board. You go, hey, come, what's going on here? And um, this, this moment of self-reflection and thinking, there is no beyond this. So there is no protecting of people that is actually going to take place if you do these measures. It's, it's so, um, it's, it's, um, it's self-referential almost. It's like you have to take the vaccine so you don't have to suffer from the measures. But this is a self-defeating argument, right? You, do, you get, do you get the meaning? It's like, okay, but why have the measures in, in the place in the first place, right? Right. And, and so there is a, the self-defeating argument, and, and um, this is what, what Georgia Agamben said already in, in, in early, um, well, in the spring of 2020. So we are now living in a historical period, de facto period, where we have uh, a state dictatorship, um, against the background of biopolitics and um, against this backdrop you can see um, quite an open denunciation of certain segments of the population right people who are uh, like in quotation marks vaccine hesitant and the most interesting phenomenon accompanying this is of course um, an actual and real racism that's happening now because a lot of uh, the people in the black population, they don't want to get the vaccine for several reasons, right? And nobody talks about that kind of racism at all because oh, you have yeah. the good guys in place, right? And um, I have to be honest with you, I, um, I've had COVID and um, so I'm immune now, and <laughs> I've read so many articles, um, you know, and interviews by doctors, and so my, my, my immunity is 6.7 times higher than if I had the vaccine, right? And I'm a healthy person. I'm super healthy. And I don't see the objective necessity of having to take the vaccine, really. I would rather get sick again than have this vaccine. Yeah, because, the, you know, the mortality, the fatality rate of, of the virus is so small for somebody who's relatively young and has no comorbidities, you know, and, um, and what, what I really don't understand is this, this culture of fear that's been proposed, you know, by, by governments all over the world, by the way, and, um, it's just about, uh, it is not about health and it's not about care and it's really not about protecting vulnerable people. This is what I, want to, what I wanted to say. It's about, um, yeah, divisiveness and it's about um, shutting out certain segments of the population from access to healthcare, from access to financial support, from access to, I don't know, um, care for, you know, family care facilities, you know, kids' daycare facilities, and so on. So this is a huge neoliberal project 
you can say that poor people, and not just in the United States, but everywhere, they are fair game for the vaccination regime, right? You can do anything with them. You can denounce them. You can say they are filth, they are trash, and you can take away their rights. And this is the whole scheme behind this, this COVID thing. It has nothing to do with the virus. It has nothing to do with protecting the health system, the NHS, or anything like that. Because if it were in the interest of the health of people, if it were in the interest of protecting um, public health um, systems, then they would have done a completely different kind of, of approach, right? And they would have done a very, a very sensible approach if this were about that. But then again, if you look at the virus um, fatality rate, it is, it, is, it is not that high, right? It can be, it, it, people are dying in countries where there is no access to healthcare. So of course the countries that don't have, that are hit the hardest, right? But then people talk, have to talk about that and not about the, the deadliness of the virus, if, if you know what I mean. Right. You know, it's a funny thing about like um, black people not like being like hesitant with the vaccine or whatever. Like it's not really just white trash MAGA people. Um, it's also a lot of, uh, hold, on, hold up one moment. Yeah. And? So, okay, hold up. Sorry, yeah, sorry. Uh, <laughs> but um, like, um, that thing with uh, wasn't there? What was so uh, something about um, they tested some kind of vaccine on like black people a while ago called like the uh, Tux G Tuxy experiment or whatever. I don't know how to pronounce it. If you know what I'm talking about, like happened in Alabama. Or yeah. Something. No, well, they, they used um, inmates in prisons, mostly, in California, I think in the 1960s. And they, and naturally, well, most of the inhabitants belonged to the, um, the, the, the inmates belonged, uh, were black. And there were, was a whole lot of experimentation with new, um, new forms of medication. And, you know, they tried, yeah, there was basically human exper experiments which is against the Nuremberg Codex too, of course, but that was done in secret and now they're doing it openly. That is one of the reasons that, that, um, that you know, interestingly, black people and Jews are, are, are um, so-called vaccine hesitants because fucking hell, they have been experimenting. Yeah, right. And, and, and no, that's the, the thing, history, like people, people, are just, people are just completely, you know, like absolutely um, unquestioning with like the vaccine today, which is a little, a little weird. Whenever you look at what the American government has done in the past. Yeah. No, it's not like from one day to the next, the government cares about you and your health and your security and uh, wants to protect you as a vulnerable group. So it's never been in the interest of the state to do that. And every Marxist knows that the state is not a neutral agent. The state is not neutral. It's a capitalist state with capitalist interests, right? So um, that's interesting. But also, I think it's it's more than that. It's it's been known that people who 
get vaccinated. Some people have no problem at all. It's not really, it's not really clear um, um, medically. It's, it's not really clear how it evolves, but um, a lot of people have to take some sick days off work after having the vaccine because they feel, they get a little fever, they feel dizzy, right? Yeah, I also just you know wonder that, about what the long-term uh, effects are going to be, too. I exactly. Mean, stuff that exactly, we don't this know is, about yet. Exactly, but this is something that's been known, right? So if you take the vaccine, you're going to have to prepare yourself that probably you have to stay off work for a couple of days, right? And a lot of people can't afford to stay off work because they don't get paid sick days, right? And so they would rather risk getting the virus and, you know, which they're not certain they will get, you know, this is very vague in, in, this, in a certain sense, then knowing for sure that they have to stay away from work for that time. And for many people in precarious uh, jobs, this is a real, um, this is a real problem, right? This is a real deal breaker <laughs> for getting the vaccine. So, this is, these are social problems. We cannot, I don't think we can look at the, the COVID, COVID thing and, and treat it as though it was a natural phenomenon. It's not a natural phenomenon. Nothing in this world is a natural phenomenon anymore. It has all been socialized in a certain way because it's been treated in pol on political terms, right? We, we live in capitalism. That's how it is. <laughs> and this is... There is no um, no such thing as a pure, unmediated kind of reality called nature, which is not already enmeshed with the social um, conditions. Yeah, I uh, I wanted to read out a couple excerpts uh, for the listeners from your your amazing Substack piece titled uh, "Basic Fucking Common Sense." which I recommend everyone go read and subscribe to your Substack. It's really good. But um, uh, here, here are a couple of excerpts I wanted to read out and, ask, and then ask you a few questions. But um, in the phase, okay, well, just, just before I get into it, like um, we had our episode with uh, Jack, the perfume nationalist. Um, and like, we were talking yeah. about how like, you know, like, okay, we get, like, I get, you know, um, not everyone completely believing like, you know, because, like, in that episode, we really – and also his podcast, he really gets into, like, a lot of the deep cultural cultural and, like, theor theory kind of stuff, um, you know, about, like, yeah. kind of, like, what the elites are doing or whatever. And, um, and you know, I just said, like, you know, I get, I get people not really believing, like, the cultural stuff and, like, what we're – like that they're that they're trying to like brainwash us and like the media and all this kind of you know the more kind of crazier conspiracy stuff or whatever but i just can't understand how people don't look at like how much money it's like this is paul public information mm -hmm. how much money jeff bezos has gained over mm -hmm. um COVID. like how people can look at that and still be, and still you know not yeah exactly any questions about any of this but mm -hmm. um here, I wanted to read out a little bit of this, but uh, it starts uh, the quote I picked here. Um, in the face of Jeff Bezos amassing 86 billion U.S. dollars in private wealth in the first months of 2020 alone, this dismissal of the Great Reset, which is a different name for managing inequality on a global scale by implementing new accumulation regi regimes, 
most prominently the Green New Deal and the wider applications of digitalization ring suspiciously hollow. You might even say it is reality defying or simply quite conspiratorial. If by conspiracy, we mean that reality is explained by an alternative uh, worldview that helps to justify one's personal revenge fantasies, in this case against lockdown critics, but lacks every reality-based evidence. Um, and then another one I have here is, uh, they practically rub it into your face. Addressing and mm -hmm. criticizing would be basic fucking common sense in a world not lacerated by the neoliberal authoritarian fangs that the left has developed over the last years. Um, and my question, I guess, is, um, like, how long do you think they can openly make this much money, you know, and, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and just, you know, call everyone who questions them, you know, conspiracy theorists or fascists? Mm -hmm. or recently, I think it was on MSNBC, um, you know, saying anyone who has opposition to COVID lockdowns is uh, like a terrorist, you know, calling everybody, mm -hmm. a, terrorist, mm -hmm. call everybody a fascist or conspiracy theorist. Like, um, uh, mm -hmm. How long do you think, like, until, you know, enough people recognize this, you know, and, you know, uh, in which, you know, we can do I, I mean, like I mean, you've just said it yourself. I mean, they can go on forever until enough people not only realize this, because realization is just the first step, but until people actually organize mm -hmm. to fight the system, right? Right. And I, I really, I really want to say we need a strong working class movement to overthrow this system. If not now, then when? It's become so fucking clear. And I use this term, <laughs> and I, I just, I called this not just basic common sense. Come on, like people, wake up. I, I, I call it basic fucking common sense because I want to emphasize how obvious it all is, right? And the, the thing is, if you operate on the psychology of fear, of fear of being excommunicated from, from, your, from your community, from, from uh, ousted from society, for fear of being called a right winger, uh, a Trumpist, a Republican, uh, then nothing will change. These people, you know, I've been called all of these things. Yeah, it's, it's ridiculous, but. I don't care because it has no substance. These people have no substance. And this argument lacks any substance. So what we need is a mass uprising, starting with young people, starting with young people at the age of, I don't know, 14, 15, 16, who now go back to school having to show a negative COVID test to queue up uh, uh, and, and hundreds in front of the school who don't make it to class because they have to take this COVID test before school starts and line up with hundreds of other school kids. Yeah, and don't certain Jesus COVID tests cost? Christ. Yes. I mean, I don't know what exactly the system is in this. I just saw the video of, uh, I don't know where this was, but there were like hundreds and hundreds of school kids lining up to get in school, but having to show their... This is crazy. Yeah. This is absolute bonkers. And we need to stop that. We need to stop the regime from taking over everything and putting everything to the service of this unreal virus. Come on, right? This is not Ebola, right? I would have 
shut up about everything I've said before, if this was a real threat to people's lives at a massive scale, right? But it's not. And we are becoming so brainwashed with this. So brainwashed as a new phase of, you know, I like Jack, um, um, the perfume nationalist stuff. And I, and I follow him on Twitter and he really, he said, he was the first to say the word, you know, the expression COVID fascism. He was oh, the yeah. first I heard, I heard <laughs> say this word and he said it so casually. And I said, yeah, we have to use this word. We yeah, I know. That's the thing. Like, we need to start throwing the fascist label back at them. Because this is the first time after 1945 that is actually appropriate to use this term. Yeah, right. This is the greatest transfer in wealth in the history of modern society. Okay? And people go along with this like nothing happens. Come on. Right? So... <laughs> I was uh, I was gone, you know. I'm I'm a mother, and uh, I was gone with my, on holiday with my kid and my husband, and uh, I wanted to take you know just some days off and not think about all this shit, you know, all, all that's happening and the fa rising fascism, you know, and the denunciation of people and so. Right. And then I couldn't, I couldn't, and that's when I sat down and wrote this this piece that you were just um, quoting from. I wrote it <laughs> on my holidays in southern France because I was so agitated by the news I saw, and I couldn't, you know, I couldn't belief that people would go along with that and um and i thought um really it cannot cannot go like on like this and i think at what eventually at one point it's gonna explode it has to you know this is already becoming more obvious now and i i don't want to talk about civil war um but you know the 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 option is on the horizon it's it's become it's become a real thing now Unless, of course, uh, everybody has been, has been blackmailed into compliance with this regime. And um, this is the only thing I'm scared of. You know? I'm not scared of being called whatever unsubstantial you know, um, slurs they use against me. I'm only scared of this COVID fascism to become uh, you know, a real thing. And it's already happened. It's already, it's, it's already happening. So if you live in New York, you live in New York, right? Uh, well, interestingly enough, I just moved from there like a month ago, but I was living there for like six months, like yeah. literally just a month ago. I mean, it's happening already, right? You cannot, I mean, you cannot access, you cannot go anywhere without this vaccine passport. And then, I'm I mean, not sure is, what already. in like the last month or two, but I know that in San Francisco, they were the first state to, I'm pretty, or like the first city, uh, I think like their whole city, they, like, like all of San Francisco, like you need a passport to get in places, um, I believe. But I'm not sure if that's like, if that's, if that's the case in New York, like you might still there probably is. I mean, when I when I was in New York, I would go into the bodega or whatever. Like, I I I definitely wouldn't wear it while I was walking around outside. I would see people fucking wearing the masks outside and shit. But, I mean, I'd go in places without a mask, and it wasn't even that big of a deal. But you know, they take it a, a lot more seriously out in, in in New York though than like Middle America. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Yeah, and then. 
sure. And I'm not even going back to my to my home country, uh, Germany. I live in Switzerland, and I'm not even going back there because that's been so blue pilled there. Um, I've just yeah. My friends there you know, tell me that the COVID's like the COVID lockdown stuff's like really crazy in Germany. No, it's so crazy. It's so beyond any rational explanation. They still use this infections per. 100,000 inhabitants as a as a measure, you know, as a parameter, which says nothing about actual infect infection and progress. It says nothing about uh, hospitalizations. It may be that pe more people get infected also with the Delta variant, but that that doesn't mean that you know the the, the health system is going to be crushed because it, it can have completely varying symptoms and none of these are um, possibly very dangerous. You know, it says nothing about the actual what was actually happening with the and also the PCR tests they are not a good parameter to 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 um to judge the situation there was some like, like scandal or whatever that decision. said like a lot of these tests were like wrong or something I think like yeah. not too long ago and it's just it's it's fucking nuts mm -hmm. wasn't there something that said like a whole bunch of these tests were inaccurate or do you know about that? Yes, it is inaccurate. It was just arbitrarily chosen as a gold standard of COVID testing. That's fucking there was insane. No, there was no, <laughs> that is literally none insane. whatsoever. Like, hey, come on. I mean, the vax, the vaccine itself hasn't gone through the four phases of testing. So what's happening right now is that uh, <laughs> people are being used, you know, as as um, laboratory rats for 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 testing this vaccine, and people are still making so much money from this, and this is the whole purpose, right? Oh and yeah, it's the pharmaceutical yeah, industry shit, has shit just of money, and and yeah. Bill Gates as well, and we have to talk about these things. We can't say, no, if you address Bill Gates, you're going to be a conspiracy theorist. No, he makes shitloads shit loads of money. The AstraZeneca vaccine wasn't even supposed to be the AstraZeneca vaccine. It was called the Oxford vaccine. It was supposed to be public. But Bill, Wright, Bill Gates, he bought the rights to this and privatized it, right? So it's no longer free. I mean, Hey, what are, what are we talking about? Okay, so this is not about the health system protecting and so on, and certainly not about uh, people not getting sick. This is about making shitloads of money, and um, yeah, I mean now everybody's talking about Afghanistan, right? Right. And it's a little bit off schedule because people get bored, and then the news news cycle moves on, and you think, yeah, okay, but eventually it will be back because it affects everybody it affects everybody especially families with young children you know the children that have to wear these n95s now for seven hours a day and get respiratory diseases from wearing the mask and not from covid and all these crazy things happening around us so yeah i mean as i said as long as as people don't speak up and you know we need more role models for also speaking up like you, you know like maybe Jack or the people you have on your show or I'm trying to contribute to that. So pe more people will find some, you know, will have developed some kind of confidence in saying these things. Oh yeah, totally. You know? That's really what I try to use. Like I really 
that's what I really try to use this podcast platform for. But, yeah. you know, it's like you were saying, you know, like we need, we need people organized. And, you know, that's the thing about COVID is that about like the whole neoliberal project in general and about uh, individualizing everything is like COVID. Mm-hmm. What was the one thing about COVID is that they said, stay home and stay by yourself. Yeah, exactly. So, Crushing every resistance to the state. Exactly. So, I mean, so if people can't physically get together and talk and organize, you know, it's illegal to fucking literally (laughs) to hang out with your friends. Um, It's quite hard to organize. And and, and workers and at the workplaces, they they cannot organize. You know, you have this whole, the social distance. You know, what was interesting to me also in the beginning of the pandemic, so the WHO, they, um, they issued, um, yeah some kind of recommendation they say they said no uh we don't want to call this because it has somehow established itself to call it social distancing and they said but the who which was interesting to me because they also you know they profit from this pandemic as well um they said no let's call this physical distancing right to make this sound more medical in a way but it never really uh pushed through this idea of calling it physical distancing. It, it was social distancing from the start and which has m- much more far reaching consequences in our you know, perception of, of this new normal. You know, if you call it social distancing, then, then physical distancing, because it, just as you said, it means staying at home, not meeting with friends and you know, with colleagues at the workplace and home officing and now i've just read the message um the news that that uh with the delta variant they are going to return to eternal home office most employees in white collar jobs in the united states and in the uk as well especially scotland scotland has just issued this um a new a new regulation where they say they're going to make COVID measures um eternal right oh wow yeah, I mean, this is happening right now. It's, it's happening around us. And uh, yeah, I can't, I, I just can't, you know, sit at home and <laughs> be quiet about it and not think about these things when they're happening and affecting everyone. You know? Yeah, and I really think too, like, um, well, you know, there's like this quote uh, from the Russian Revolution uh, where they say, uh, what is it, you know, this saying, they say, uh, like, Oh, the more the more leeway you give the working, or the the more leeway you give the people, or like the more, um, the more the more power you give the people, the more likely you are to get taken over by the people. You know, so mm-hmm. keep the people weak, keep them stupid, um, keep them on a leash. Exactly, and then you'll make sure that they won't that that they're not gonna you know like have a revolution or whatever. But yeah. um, I think really that's what they're 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 doing a successful a successful job of that. And uh, like your your piece, the nihilist left, um, like ever since Bernie dropped out, and then you know this COVID shit really started happening. Um, it's like things are so bad, people are just like really black pilled. Um, mm-hmm. And I, you know, a lot of my friends are you know what we call a nihilist leftist. And I think that I even used to, you know, kind of be one uh, two years ago. Um, and a lot of people listening to this would say the same thing. 
Um, and a lot mm -hmm. of people listening to this probably still are kind of like this nihilist left kind of people. And it's just, I, I even th I, I thought it was pretty funny too, like your piece and um, mm -hmm. the way yeah. you talked about them. But uh, you know, what was your inspiration um, behind writing that? Yeah, so <laughs> it is a funny story, but just let me say, because it's kind of personal, but just let me say that this is addressed, this is addressing a few former peers from, from Marxist circles that I've had, who now write for uh, like Brooklyn Rail and these left liberal uh, things. And basically that's, that's a position within the mostly US radical left like saying like everything is fucked, you know, yeah, capital, right. is, capital fucked. Is, is, is everywhere and um, like normality is <laughs> Right, exactly. And they say things like free speech is just a liberal illusion and uh, schools are prisons and all this bullshit, you know, like everything is reified. But I think, um, so my thesis would be that this attitude uh, and, and nihilist leftism, which is I think very pervasive, in the U.S. left is, is just neoliberal ideology. Now, yeah. why? So I think it's really, it's no longer about overcoming capitalism. It's about finding a way to arrange, to live, to arrange life in such a way that you, you're feeling entitled to complain, right? And, and you don't even grasp, uh, you, you have no concept of, of normality. You know, when we say normality is death, the normal life is death, right? when you are in a very privileged position to be very PMC, you know, middle class, you know, white grad students in elite universities who all, uh, if they are left, who, who all uh, um, hold this kind of position about this, this nihilist position. They talk about the commodity form day in and day out and they post Adorno memes, hashtag doom, you know, and, and to be honest, uh, you know, they, the sad Wotan, you know, the dog in the house of fire, you know, the, the sarcasm, me in hell and so on. And, and to be honest, it's, it's so boring. You know, it's, it's, there's nothing actually stimulating in this position. This is exactly where it also coincides with the neoliberal conformist, right? Because the neoliberal conformist also doesn't want to change anything about the situation, just wants to complain. You know, oh, things can, you know, things are bad, you know, things are bad, things are good. It doesn't matter, really, because there's no action. It's complete inaction. And the problem is uh, with, this, with this attitude, uh, it's not even a theoretical position, though I will come back to that. Um, what is criticized, like capitalism, is, become, is becoming naturalized, okay? So you have this, this, this attitude of being a nihilist. And, 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 and you're not believing in a lively exchange of ideas. This is exactly where rationality is constituted. And because you don't believe in an exchange of ideas and, you know, trying to change things for the better and actually forming organizations and so on, um, the nihilist leftist becomes not only irrational, but he becomes very compliant. Right? This is exactly the society that Milton Friedman and other neoliberal theorists, uh, they, they want, you know, no actual resistance, you know, in action, just saying, oh, like, everything is fucked. You, you get my meaning, right? Right. But well, yeah, because then it, that's the thing about keeping everybody weak is, you know, if like, if yeah, they exactly. don't see any And hope, it's a sign of weakness. That's a yeah. sign of weakness and cowardice as well. The nihilist leftist is a coward. He's a coward. And I've seen 
Well, that was a that was an actual thing happening. Why I wrote this piece and. Um, Okay, let me, okay, I can talk, I think I can talk about, I don't have to name names, but it was like, I have, I'm currently, um, or I have uh, finished a new book project, um, co-editing a volume, which you guys got to check out, it's called uh, The Conformist Rebellion, uh, Marxist Critiques of the Contemporary Left, okay, and it's out next year. And January, and uh, so we're looking forward to that. We have 14 authors who write on very different topics from culture and um, culture war and, and class and race and gender and environmentalism and so on. Now, um, I, had a, I had a person, I had one of my authors, you know, actually a friend, somebody I knew for quite a few years and his family as well. And, um, and just, I think, one or two weeks before the deadline for his piece, his contribution to the book, calls me and he asks, oh, he saw who else is, you know, in, in the list of contributors. And he doesn't want to be in a book with one of those contributors. Oh, God. Right? And so I said, okay, you have a problem with this contributor, but... Do you think we can do something like a lively exchange, something like you can talk about this? Because you can still have a critical position towards someone, right? But then you have to talk it, you know, you have to talk about it. You have to exchange these ideas. And then he says, and I quote him verbally, free speech is just a liberal illusion, right? This is so authoritarian and reified. This is exactly the reification that he thinks he would address in criticizing capitalist society. So he doesn't understand anything about Marx's theory that he's been writing books about. He doesn't understand the first thing about the theory of, of fetishization, right? If we don't talk to each other and exchange the ideas and make sure, okay, that criticism is still alive and not just denouncing people and canceling people, right? Then this is really going to be a problem. And so there's no vision. Uh, 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 there's no uh, positive a moment in this kind of, of, of theoretical attitude of this, this nihilist, right? He, um, already believing that everything is, is fucked and everything is reified and everything. Is no, you instantiate this kind of reification by refusing to appear in a book alongside another author who, do, who, who you don't like. Do you get my meaning? Yeah. So um, I found that so it was, he, it was such, such a cowardice related to this position. You know, I don't want to be, I cancel this because I don't want to be canceled, right? This is this, is this, this atmosphere of, of, of fear that um, academic, uh, that's, that's been going on in the academic world. But I think there's a deeper theoretical problem behind nihilist leftism. Because in my view, a real communist acknowledges the achievements of bourgeois democracy, right? While simultaneously trying to overcome it. But right. it's really important to see that without formal democracy, like free speech, civil rights, universal suffrage, and so on, there will also be no worker democracy, right? This is the first, we need to see that 
capitalist society has evolved in forms which could be very much used by the working class. But the nihilist leftist has no problem with getting rid of free speech, civil rights, and so on. Because capitalism bad, right? But in in this position, he embraces a totalitarian submission to pushing back the achievements of modernity. And these achievements of modernity, they were the achievements of the working class. Of course, the ruling class didn't want to, you know, give people universal suffrage or uh, the right of, you know, free speech and, and civil rights and, and, you know, liberties. That was an achievement of the working class. And by denouncing these basic um achievements of of the bourgeois democratic state, bourgeois democratic modernity, the um, the nihilist leftist becomes something like a racket to neoliberal ideology. Yes, what's funny about a lot of these people is that they they say that, oh, like they admit and say like, okay, yeah, cancel culture is bad, but they're all fucking too scared to like say anything against it or support people mm-hmm. who are canceled or get in trouble. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't really matter what the fuck you believe or what the fuck your opinion is. If you think cancel culture is bad or not, if you're not doing anything about it or you're not sticking exactly. up for people who are quote unquote canceled. Um, yeah. That's what I really hate is like they talk all this shit about how they're so cool and you know anti-woke and anti-cancel culture but they're scared shitless to actually get quote-unquote canceled or getting get in trouble in, in any way but you know the anti-woke left leftists are just as bad as the woke leftists i mean precisely for this reason and this is also you know i've just as you know i've deleted my instagram account because there were too many of these nihilist leftists everything is fucked up in schools or prisons and so on and being on the anti-woke thing, but they would not, you know, they wouldn't understand totalitarianism as we experience it now if it farted in their face, right? So it's, to me, it's it's just a big uh, cognitive dissonance or performative contradiction, whatever you want to call it. Now, nihilism doesn't get us anywhere. And that's why I'm, I'm saying, you know, you have to organize. We have to fight the system and actually organize, you know, and, and I would do it. Uh, without further further ado, um, and I'm doing it actually <laughs> with what I, with my limited possibilities in the place that I live. But um, so it's so it's just a stupid also this take. Schools are prisons, right? I mean, who fought for schools? Who fought for universal education? <laughs> it was a working class, you know, and and and. and being against uh, free speech and against um, any kind of institution, uh, you know, that the working class has has fought for is not a very leftist position. <laughs> Although now you have to say that every leftist believes that, but they are neoliberals, in fact. No, they're not really leftists. Leftism is dead. We have to kill it. <laughs> right. Well, um... I don't want to take up any more of your time. I know you must be yeah. very busy, but um, thank you so much for coming. No problem. On. Yeah, it was it was great talking to you and being on the show. Thank you so much. Yeah, you should definitely come on again. Um, we yeah. we we definitely want. Uh, we're we're about to have Perfume Jack on again, 
he was really okay. great. And yeah, you were definitely one of my one of one of my one of the best episodes, I think. So we definitely I definitely want you to come on again. That'd be great. That would be great. Maybe you can have um both of us in one episode. Oh yes. No, you know other. what? Maybe we can actually work that. You know, I even I told him too. I said I told him that you should uh that he should invite you on your show. That I that I thought that um he'd really he'd really like your work. Yeah. Oh, but, I, love, um, I, I really like his stuff too. He's very yeah. He's I'm, I'm a woman though. I can't help it. You know, I, I'm not a feminist, but <laughs> no, I'm kidding. I know he's not like that. You know, when it comes to rational, uh, rational, rational people, yeah. Uh, that, I think it would be interesting to have a back and forth uh, like that. I mean, we're all more or less like-minded people, and that would be that would be yeah. It's funny too, though, because he's like he's really anti-communist, especially lately. And uh, it would be really funny to, you know, you're okay, like a real yeah. deal Marxist. So it would be, it would be funny to have you guys have a back and forth, maybe a debate about communism on the Drill Call Gang podcast. That'd be very funny. That'd be good. <laughs> okay. I'll think about that. Sounds good. <laughs> okay. Well, okay. Uh, we'll, we'll stop the recording. Let's go. You know what's going on.